Where does yesterday's future, which is already here, ready here, ready here, ready here, meet today's future, which is about to happen, and tomorrow's future, which could be just minutes away? Welcome to Technology Revolution, the future of now, where host Bonnie D. Graham asks savvy futurists for their predictions about the tech-driven trends that are shaping our future right now. Here's your host, who will take us into the future of now, Bonnie D. Graham. Here I am. I never remember whether I say the future is to the right or left. To the benefit of our people out there who are watching us on LinkedIn and Facebook, I want my panelists to wave hello to our live stream visual audience. There you are. Lewis, wave, wave, wave. You got to wave. It's a requirement to be on the show. Lewis is our new panelist. I'm looking at us on LinkedIn. I have been noticing when I do shows about drones, I did several last year with three of these panelists who are these gentlemen are on today. I'm looking at their bios and I noticed that the word patent kept popping up. One of them is a lead on 28 patents. Another one has over 130. Another one has more than 10. And I said, wait a minute. In all these years, I've never done a show about the future of patents. And here we are today. And that's what we're going to do. It was an idea whose time had come. So thank Thank you, gentlemen. And we have a patent attorney with us as well. I'm going to read you a little bit of an opening uh, with my usual buzz quotes, but I will tell you that I'm using ChatGPT. If you haven't tried it, it's openai.com and it's free at the current time. It's an AI chatbot. You put in a query, doesn't even have to have a question mark. It will write a novel for you. It will write a term paper for you. It will do research for you. It will find movie quotes. So here are five of the quotes I found on the topics of patents. So Dr. Grant, played by, well, Hugh Grant in the movie Nine Months from 1995, said, I'm not interested in a patent. I just want to make the world a better place. Okay, that's interesting. Then I have a quote from Bud, played by Elijah Wood, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, 2004 film. I'll never get a patent. I'm not a businessman. I'm an artist. Well, my goodness, that's interesting, isn't it, Chuck? I'm seeing you smile at that one. Then we have one from Chris, uh, the Doctor, played by Christopher X. Escalon in Doctor Who, was a 2005 TV show, and the quote is, patents, that's the whole problem. We have too many patents. They stifle progress. Oh, I bet that's going to be a little contentious with my guest today. Then we have a quote from Doc Brown, Doc Emmett Brown, played by the wonderful Christopher Lloyd. Of course, the movie is Back to the Future 1985, sci-fi, and here's the, mo- here's the quote, I own the patent on time travel. You mess with time, you mess with me. I thought that was really cool. And here's one more. I've got a patent on an idea. I don't think I'm asking too much to make a little bit of money off it. That was Todd, played by Brian Cranston in Love the Coopers 2015. And one more. This is from Tony Stark, played, of course, by Robert Downey Jr., Iron Man 2, 2010 film. He said, I can't believe I got a patent on something I stole from somebody else. Oh, I even have one more. Steve Carell playing Phil in The 40-Year-Old Virgin, excuse the word, 2005, said, I've got a patent on a new kind of light bulb. It's a lot like the old light bulb, but it's new. I'm hoping my panelists are smiling at all of those because they probably reflect some of what you've each thought about and gone through. I want to give you a little bit of a humorous take on patent. There is such a thing as patent humor, and this, again, was written by ChatGPT. Listen up. 
The U.S. patent system is a way for inventors to protect their brilliant ideas from being stolen by others and turned into lucrative products, thereby depriving the original inventor of all the fame and fortune they rightfully observe. A deserve. And then I'll read the very last part. Beware. Obtaining a patent is no guarantee for success. Many inventors struggle to turn patented ideas into profitable products. Some patents just gather dust on a shelf rather than making their mark on the world. However, for those who do succeed. The rewards can be well worth the effort. So go forth and invent, my friends. That's a chatbot writing that. The top five men in the world with the most patents, you all know who some of these are. Thomas Edison. Did you know, Ryan, he has over a thousand patents, including the phonograph, the light bulb, and the motion picture camera? Has anybody ever heard of Chester Greenwood? Lewis, have you ever heard of him? Chester? Uh, uh, yes. You have. Okay. Well, he invented the first earmuffs in 1873, and he has over 200 patents. He must have done a lot of thinking. I probably snuffed out the noise with the earmuffs. George Westinghouse, we know the name, 300 patents. Nikola Tesla, 300 more than. Oliver Evans, anybody ever heard of him? Yes, no? Oliver Evans, he invented the first fully automatic, automated U.S. factory. Interesting. Does anybody remember? Well, you're all too young. Chuck, you might remember her from the movies Hedy Lamarr. Oh, yes. Actress, yes. Well, she co-invented with a composer a patent for a frequency hopping system used in World War II mm -hmm. to improve the security of naval communications. She was a beauty on the screen. Nobody knew she had brains, too, and she certainly did. Marie Curie, you've all heard of. First woman awarded a Nobel Prize, and she's the only person to be awarded a Nobel Prize for two scientific fields, physics and chemistry. Grace Hopper, we all know, American computer inventor. 50 patents? I didn't know that. Anybody ever heard of Ada Yoneth? Oh, yes. Yes, you have. Okay. Well, she's an Israeli crystallographer. Mm -hmm. She has more than 50 patents. She's the first woman to earn a Nobel Prize in chemistry for her work on the structure of ribosomes. And then Marie Engel Pennington. Everybody, anybody ever heard of her? Marie Pennington? She has more than 50 patents and she's a pioneer in the food industry. Wow. So here we go. I have, wave what I call your name. Lewis Alex is with us. He's our patent attorney. There he is. Can I get you to smile, sir? And there it is. Ah, look up and smile. We have Ryan Walsh with us. Ryan, you're a regular on the show about mm -hmm. drones. We have Chuck Byers is back. Hi, Chuck. How are you? And Alex Becker is back with us. And Alex is doing very, very heavy promotions of his book. And you can see a picture of it if you're looking on the screen. And our topic today is the future of patents and technology, protecting your IP genius or not so much. And remember, this panel, excepting Lewis Alex, who was our attorney today, the panel has almost 170 patents as of last count. So I have people in the know. Welcome to all of you. Appreciate your being here. I'm Bonnie D. This is Technology Revolution, the future of now. And here we are. This is the start of our 2023 regular programming season. I'm very honored to have you here. Mr. Louis, Lewis, Alex, would you do me the honor, please, of giving us about three minutes of your bio? What brought you to law? What brought you to IP law? What do you think about everything going on with AI? Who writes it? Who designs it? Who draws it? Who sings it? Who strums it? Who gets the credit? Who no. gets the IP? Louis, talk to us. Welcome. Uh, thank you so much. Um, my background really was in technology, I think, and uh, a strong interest in music as well. And that's what drew me to um, intellectual property law because uh, uh, the interest in technology, I was a chemical engineer in undergrad. Um, at the same time, I had a strong interest in music. I played piano and, and keyboard for jazz and, and rock groups, um, which finds its way into copyright law. 
um, it really drew me to the the uh, the whole idea of how our ideas protected, uh, whether it be technology, whether it be music, whether it be expression, um, and that really was the genesis of my interest. Um, uh, it's the way in which both could be, you know, addressed in a single subject area uh, was what drew me to it. And so um, I kind of come at, you know, from 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 both perspectives, um, uh, very interested in, in technology, but I also think about other forms of intellectual property constantly to see how things can be protected and enforced and for for rights to be preserved. Um, and uh, you have to look at it with an open mind, really. Um, you can't be too biased in one direction. Thank you, Lewis. A pleasure to have you on, and I'm very intrigued. You said chemical engineering, and you said piano and music, and so you certainly have a background of the industries or the professions that would want to be protected. Can we say that, Lewis? That's fair. Yes. yes. Thank you very much. When a lawyer tells me it's fair, I appreciate that very much. Let's go around the table now. Ryan Walsh, I'm guessing there are probably, let me see, I did a calculation this morning. There might be nine and a half people around the world who don't remember you, Ryan, because you've been on so often. So why don't you update us? Chuck, it'll be the same number for you. And Alex Becker, it'll probably be about 13 and a half because you haven't been on as many times as they have. Ryan Walsh, update us. What have you been up to? Welcome back and happy new year. Hey, Bonnie, how are you? Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, we've been uh, really focusing on uh, getting our drone technology ready and uh, also pursuing patent strategies and uh, kind of been straddling both worlds right now. So um, kind of a perfect time and perfect uh, topic with a, a great panel for this. Thank you very much. Talk to me. You have been the lead on 28 Patents for Valkyrie. What does it mean to be the lead on a patent? I just want to get a little more background on the topic from you, Ryan. Tell me. Um, really, uh, you know, kind of more of a, who's first on the, the names, uh, not as much, uh, you know, the uh, not, there's nothing really that goes along with it, but usually the person that kind of comes up with the idea and then you get your co-inventors to help you round it out and uh, put all the, the polish on it, so to speak. Thank you very much. Man, a few words, but always packs a punch. And let's go to Chuck Byers. Chuck, you're with us again. Welcome again. Happy New Year. Talk to me. Nine and a half people don't remember you. Shame on them. Chuck, bring us I, up to date. <laughs> go I, ahead. Well, I, I love this stuff. And thanks again for having me on, Bonnie. This is such an interesting format and such an interesting audience and such an interesting crew of folks to work with today. Uh, I actually applied for my first patent when I was in college. And uh, I worked at the famous Bell Laboratories where I got bunches of them. I worked at Cisco where I was uh, one of the leading inventors. I think I was number four or five among the 80,000 people at Cisco at the time in terms of patent activity. And uh, it, it turns out that uh, I was also on some of the patent committees, sort of the, the ones in corporations who figure out which of the way too many ideas are actually going to go forward and uh, and make the investment to be patented. So I've kind of think about it from both the inventor of 135 ideas and the filter of the 10,000 good ideas that are out there that just don't get written by those big corporations. So I'm certainly interested in that. Um, I'll just tell you, uh, of my patents, I'll tell you that, that there's one that I'm particularly proud of. 
and that is uh, the engine that's sitting in your pocket right now on your telephone that will warn you if a tornado is coming or some other big disaster. I actually own the patent on the uh, the thing that figures out where the humans are and figures out where the hazards are and warns the most uh, the most endangered humans first. That turns out to be uh, one of the first references in the entire patent literature of what we now call location-based services. So that's what I'm really proud of. There's also one I'm not particularly proud of. I actually have a patent on a train whistle. Never saw the light of day, never got built, but it's a hell of a yeah. fancy train whistle. It has an array of speakers, and a bunch of digital signal processors, and it does cool stuff, but nobody wants to build that one. Oh, that's so interesting. So my opening written by ChatGPT about is it collecting dust? Maybe it is. Quick yes. question for you, Chuck. Quick, and I usually ask questions during the bio part of the show, but I just have the question for you. And then I'll, I'll go back. I'll ask it of Alex Becker next, and I'll go back to Ryan. How long does it take? To write up and apply for a patent. Well, is, are we talking three hours? Are we talking three months? Are we talking three years? In general, on average. Chuck, timing? In in general, well, you know, you can do it a day, especially if you're going to give a presentation tomorrow morning and you want to have it, uh, what's called a provisional patent on file. It generally takes me uh, probably over the course of three months, you know, maybe a few dozen hours to calculate the idea, refine it into its essence, and then talk to the lawyers about all the disclosures. In terms of once you file a thing uh, with the United States Patent and Trademark Office until you actually get awarded a patent, I've had them go as, uh, as short as eight months, and I've had some that have been languishing for five or six years in the patent office, and I'm they're still thinking about it. So uh, it's, it's all over the board on that. You're, you're not gonna have instant gratification in this business by any stretch. But as you said, it's worth it. And the U.S. patent law went into effect, written and signed by President George Washington. So it's been around a while. Thank you, Alex Becker. Welcome back, Mr. Drizzit, Dr. Drizzit, I should say. Alex, oh, just pretend you haven't been on before because you have such an interesting bio. Tell everybody who you are. Alex, welcome and Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you, Bunny. Thank you so much for having me again. Uh well, I'm I'm born and raised in Argentina. I uh, moved here to uh, go to MIT and then cross the country, convinced uh, a future roommate of mine to pick me up in Boston and drive uh, drive me uh, across America to come to uh, California to get a PhD at Caltech because I didn't have a car at the time. Uh, I got a PhD in neuroscience uh, and then uh, I got bitten by the California entrepreneurship bug uh, and started uh, starting companies, been, been starting companies ever since. Um, I started a company called Qless that eliminates waiting in line and has saved uh, a couple hundred million people more time of waiting in line than all of recorded history. And uh, I'm uh, now heading a company called Drizzit that is a, a platform uh, for remote drone control. It allows you to uh, control a drone anywhere in the world from anywhere else in your uh, your phone or computer uh, and all kinds of applications. And um, I have written a book for my uh, kids called uh, 101 Clues mm -hmm. to a Happy Life. And on Valentine's Day, I'll be uh, putting out my uh, uh, first uh, single or song with a new uh, songwriting duo that I just uh, created called Jack and Hill. Uh, so that's Jack, Jack and Hill. Yes, you sent me the promo for that. Very, very interesting. I'm doing a show on the future of music and AI. Who writes the songs? Who owns the rights? 
Do you like that, Ryan, for a title of a show? Everybody, because ChatGPT will do it. It will make drawings and, and portraits and paintings, and it will write, write music, too. And the question is, and this has come up on some of my shows, I'm doing one also on novelists. Who writes the novel? Who who protect Alex mm-hmm. uh, Lewis? That would be. I have two Alexes, a first name and last name. <laughs> Lewis Alex. That'd be an interesting one because it does the thriller novelist who borrows a short piece from a Chat GPT intro, and I've asked it to write intros for my novel that's been sitting mm-hmm. languishing on the shelf for two years, and it got me the idea that I have a murder. It's a comedy murder mystery. I forgot to put a detective in it, so I asked Chat GPT to give me quirky names, and it gave me. 10 male names and 10 female names, and they're all alliterations. So it would be like Willow West and Marmalade yes. Morris. And I, I love that. I can't tell whether that's a man or a woman, but I like yeah. Marmalade Morris. That might be in my novel. Now you'll know how to find it because I'm using a pseudonym. Anyway, very, very interesting. Who would own that part of the book if it's traceable back? Like Taylor Swift says somebody stole a, a little, right? Alex Becker, a little sampling of her of her song, and and she's suing somebody for repeating that. Well, wait a minute. Those are three notes. Everybody uses them. You stole it from my song. So if you use a little piece that chat a chatbot AI wrote for you in the book, and people say, oh, I love chapter 17, the fourth page in chapter seven, and that's the part AI wrote. Who gets the credit? Who gets the who gets the proceeds from the book? That's it. Lewis, Alex, do you have any comment on that? I, I know we're not talking about novels today, but any any comments on how do you parse out the ownership of the rights in that case? Very complicated question. Uh, it's kind of hard to answer, but um, there's also the concept of fair use in copyright law, um, and so depending on the amount of material that's been taken and uh, uh, a few other factors that are enumerated in the law, it's it. It, the fair use issue can make it a bit uncertain, but um, the AI aspect of it too is now a more recent development that that raises questions. And so it's 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 you kind of have to know the facts and the devils in the details. It and you know that you know the ChatGTP people are archiving every syllable they sent to, as answers, and you know they're going to go back and search all profitable works to see if those syllables exist. See, there you go. So we're being we're being watched again. <laughs> and then the question is, who owns those rights? Who at ChatGPT gets the money, and how many people created the algorithm? That anyway, blah blah blah. Thank you. Let's go to the fictional movie or TV character quote and the song lyric part of the show. I've asked my guest to send me something that, in most cases, has nothing to do with the topic. But I let Lewis Alex pick a movie scene that is right about our topic. So, Lewis, I'm going to read a little bit about the scene, and I'm going to ask you to tell us, give us the backstory. I have it here, but I'd like to hear from you. So the scene is from the movie. Let's see, where's the quote? The attribution is Flash of Genius. It's a 2008 American biographical drama film about Bob Kearns, Mm K-E-A-R-N-S, and he invented the intermittent windshield wiper. Here's the scene. Uh, Greg Kinnear, wonderful actor, plays Kearns, and he says, I have a book here. I have a book. It's by Charles Dickens. It's called A Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. Let's start with the first word, it. Did Charles Dickens create that word? And the expert witness, Professor Chapman says, no. And Curran says, what about the word was? No. Curran says, okay, so then you agree that there's not probably a single new word in this book. All Charles Dickens did was arrange them in a new pattern, right? But Dickens did create something new, didn't he? By using the words the only tools available to him, just as almost all inventors in history have had the tools available to them. Telephones, space satellites were all made from parts 
that already existed. Correct, professor? Parts, you might buy out of a catalog. And the professor says, technically that's true, yes, but that. And Curran says, no further questions. Lewis, Alex, I have the background on the Bob Curran story. You want to give, I'd rather hear it in your words than in me reading this. So why don't you give us a little bit and tell us how in the world you found this. Lewis, go ahead. Sure. Um, Bob Kearns was the inventor of the intermittent windshield wiper, which is what um, uh, puts the windshield motion of the windshield wiper on delay. Uh, so it's not constantly moving um, uh, at the same rate, uh, much in the same way that your, your eye blinks and permits you to see without being too obstructive. Um, and uh, when time, he was effectively charging um, uh, an automaker with infringement um, who he had tried to um, engage to commercialize the product and who um, effectively adopted it for their own. And um, uh, they were making money on it and they had incorporated it into their vehicles. And um, they claimed the, uh, uh, the concept was not patentable. Uh, and one of the basic arguments made was, well, it comes from existing um, uh, parts, existing equipment, conventional parts, and um, uh, somehow that should be prejudicial against the idea of of uh, the result being patentable. And the whole point here is that it's the combination of these elements that uh, the invention is found in. Every inventor, most inventors, work and can work only with what exists today in order to achieve uh, a result. A combined result um, uh, tomorrow, and so uh, the mere fact that you're working with uh, off-the-shelf product, uh, off-the-shelf parts, um, that's not where invention lies. In it's in the combination of the elements and in the, in their refinement and their their new and practical end. And um, you know when you when you watch the movie uh, and you hear Kearns deliver that line from from Dickens you really appreciate how the synergy of that um, delivers just a new and different result. I mean, it, it just, the, the statement was so elegant and there was so much tied into it and you really appreciate how the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So I don't know if that's responsive. But. That's that's fine, Lewis. Thank you. And the, the part of the backstory, the other backstory is that on his wedding night, he hit himself in the eye with a champagne cork. Bob yes. Kearns. And his eye kept blinking to get moisture back. And he said, what if, and then he was driving in the rain. He said, what if a windshield wiper would know when to turn on when it needed to wipe the water off the windshield, just like my eye was blinking when mm -hmm. I needed to lubricate it from the insertion of, the, and then he, he did the, he, the invention in his basement and he tested it in a fish tank. And when he went to this major car manufacturer, they didn't want it, but they stole it. You know, Lewis, they settled for $30 million in a settlement, and they never admitted deliverable, deliberate, <coughs> deliberate theft. Aha. But they did take it from him. So there, anybody have any comments on that, on the story, the movie? Anybody want to make a comment, or should we move on? I think we're going to move on. Ryan Walsh, I'm looking at what you sent me here. Oh, this is funny. The character is Bullet Tooth Tony, played by Vinnie Jones. The movie is Snatch. 2000 British American crime comedy film directed and written by the one and only Guy Ritchie in my new 
my new Apple keyboard and monitor are just being delivered by UPS out the window. He'll have to wait. Thank you. The sign on the door says, on air, do not ring the bell. Let's see if he listens. The London criminal underworld with Chuck like that. The London criminal underworld with two intertwined fast-paced plots. The search for a stolen diamond and a small-time boxing promoter. Jason Statham, I like him. Under the thumb of a ruthless gangster who's ready to have subordinates carry out severe acts of violence. And Bullet Tooth Tony was one of those small-time, uh, yeah, crooks. And here's the quote. You should never underestimate the predictability of stupidity. I just love that movie. Um, but, you know, we always used to say in the Army, uh, professionals, they're easy to predict. It's its amateurs that are tough. Um <laughs> It's very much the same in uh, patents and technology and everything else. And so it just seemed very apropos for the topic of discussion today. And a lot of the times the most novel ideas come from people so far removed from the, the art, you know. Thank you very much. I want you to keep talking for a minute because my Zoom is frozen and I can't get off of you. So you're still on screen. So give me a little bit more about that. Oh, there we go. Okay. I can't get off of, of speaker view. I'm trying to get back to yeah. gallery view. I will continue because I think I can read my notes. Let's go to a Chuck Byers. I'm looking at the quote you sent me, and this is interesting. The attribution is a song by Warren Zevon who left us in 2003. The title of the song is Lawyers, Guns, and Money, which is also a blog, and also it's been used in many TV show openings. It's from his 1978 album, and I love the title of the album, Excitable Boy. That would be somebody whose patent is granted, right? And here's the quote. Everybody listen up. I was gambling in Havana. I took a little risk. Send lawyers, guns, and money. Louis Alex is talking to you. Dad, get me out of this. Ha! I'm the innocent bystander. Yeah. Somehow I got stuck between the rock and a hard place, and I'm down on my luck. Yes, I'm down on my luck. Well, I'm down on my luck, and I'm hiding in Honduras. I'm a desperate man. Send lawyers, guns, and money. The blank, blank, blank has hit the fan. I don't say that word on my show. Chuck Byers, help me out here. What does this have to do with our topic? I love the quote. I love the song. Yeah, well, I was a, I was a disc jockey in college radio back in about 1982, and I was told I, uh, I was on an AM radio station but I had an FM voice. And uh, <laughs> anyway, I was playing well done. bunches of Hall and & Oates and Madonna and Air Supply. And once in a while, you just need to cleanse your palate with a yeah. song about mercenaries or werewolves or international spies, as the case for lawyers, guns, and money. The reason I chose it as my quote is mostly because you're going to need copious amounts of two of the three of those attributes if you're going to file patents. And I'll leave an exercise up to the listener to figure out, is it lawyers, guns, or money that you need? <laughs> All instruments of force. <laughs> intention and force. Real yeah. intention and force. Thank you very yeah. much. Appreciate that. And let's go to Alex Becker. You've sent an interesting quote. We love this quote. It's from Professor John Keating, played by somebody who left us, I think, way too soon, Robin Williams. The movie, of course, is Dead Poet Society, 1989 American teen drama film. Mm. I don't know why they call it a teen drama. I think it has life lessons in it. I think it's way more than that. Uh, a fictional elite all-male conservative Vermont boarding school called the Welton Academy in 1959. New English teacher, Professor Keating, inspires his students who are all boys through poetry. And here's the quote, carpe diem, seize the day, boys, make your lives extraordinary. Alex Becker, I know you like this quote because you've used it before on my shows. So tell me, what does this have to do with our topic today? Go ahead. 
yeah, I love corporate. I mean, I, I start every day uh, remembering that today is the beginning of the rest of our life, right? We're, we're often, you know, uh, upset about something that happened in the past. And it's often useful to just remind yourself, well, today is the beginning of the of, of what's uh, left. Um, and so just using it and uh, and and having fun with the day and and doing something, you know, at the end of the day, I ask myself, you know, what did I do today? Will it, you know, have, have I done something that uh, will bring me closer to what I want to remember on my deathbed? So I think uh, it's something to always keep close to mind. That's an interesting way to look at it. What, what's Somebody wrote a book called The Dash, right? What do you do in The Dash, the time between the time you were born and the time you pass? What is your dash? Very, very interesting. Alex Becker, what made you th- want to get patents? You've got 11 of them right now. You've got Drizzt. You've got your your uh, Qless. I'm sure you have a lot more. What made you want to get patents for your inventions? Why did you say, this is patentable? This is a great idea. What, what was that moment? Uh, it's to protect, uh, you know, you, you you create an innovation, you put a lot of uh, work into it. And, you know, like, uh, as you read before, you know, you don't want somebody writing along with that uh, instead, uh, instead. So uh, it's, it's, it's that simple. Even a big car company that thinks you've got a cool invention, right, Lewis? <laughs> intermittent wipers. Wow. I like the kind that just know when it's raining and you don't even have to put them on intermittent, right? It just, it just keeps rolling along. There you go. Okay, let's go to the predictions part of our show. That's what we're all about here. The future. I have four wonderful futurists. Future of patents and technology. Oh my goodness, protecting your IP or not so much? Somebody just changed their picture because the screen changed. Okay, so Alex Becker's on the top left now. I can't keep up with this. Lewis Alex, our attorney today, you are going to go minutes and then I'll ask the panel if anybody has any comments. I'm not going to call on each of you, but just wiggle one polite finger at me if you want to talk. So Lewis said the following, as e-commerce continues to grow in relation to traditional forms of distribution, Online forums will improve and expand mechanisms for parties to assert and defend against patent and other intellectual property right violations. The speed and efficiency with which these mechanisms provide certain relief for right holders against infringing activity, particularly when it emanates from companies outside the U.S., will encourage further use by businesses and their counsel. Can you please translate this into English for me, Mr. Lewis, Alex? So we... <laughs> Go ahead. In, in short, um, you know, when we think about patents and the growth of patents, um, uh, the underlying idea there is that uh, you're going to be interfacing with a government agency to secure the patent. You're possibly going to be going to a court to enforce it. Uh, and for a lot of people, uh, something like that can be out of reach. Uh, the cost of the patent litigation might be a million to $5 million. Uh, rarely can you litigate a patent through trial for less than a million dollars. Um, with the growth of e-commerce, um, you have this idea of private enforcement of rights. Um, the intermediary, uh, whether it be Amazon or anybody else, uh, now needs to provide a means for dispute resolution uh, online. And that's really, really significant. Um, Amazon accounts for 35 to 40% of all retail e-commerce. Um, globally, e-commerce might be on the order of 20% of all retail sales. Um, and as it grows and displaces traditional forms of marketing, the more significant the tools they offer are to enforcing and defending 
against infringement claims. Um, uh, with you know going back to when the internet the the internet came about, uh, you know we've had a means for enforcing copyright and trademark. Mm -hmm. Only in the last five years have these forums offered uh, resolution of patent infringement claims, utility patent or design patent. Um, that's something that's relatively new. And uh, the speed, the reduced costs, the reach of these tools make them absolutely invaluable to a patent holder. Um, it also, those very same benefits are what attract potential misuse of them to gain unfair competitive advantage. And uh, these issues are appreciated when you consider how you might try to enforce your rights in, uh, in a traditional uh, forum. When you you know, in a patent infringement suit filed in the federal district court against a defendant located in a foreign jurisdiction such as China, um, that requires the plaintiff to allow for international service of process. You have to go through the Hague Convention. Um, in reality, that could take several months to a year to complete. That only accomplishes service of the complaint. But now when you have a means for enforcing your rights um, in the online forum, which again is becoming more and more dominant as a means of marketing and sale, uh, you can do it within weeks, um, often within two or three months, and you can be asserting rights against multiple people, 10, 20, 30, 40 infringing parties, um, all without ever having to go to court. Uh, now, you know, by no means is this a substitute for a court order, uh, but when the online platform becomes more and more dominant, anyone engaged in marketing or sale of a patentable product through e-commerce needs to appreciate the way in which this newer form of enforcement, i.e. private enforcement, is likely to play a greater role in the future. Thank you very much. Very interesting. Chuck Byers wanted to say something. I saw that nice, polite finger. Go ahead, Chuck. I actually have a follow-up question for Lewis. Do you think that the online forums will actually help you discover infringers? Like, will there be a crowdsource? Ooh, I think somebody's infringing on patent XYZ. Maybe somebody will pay me a bounty for this information. Is that sure. something likely to happen? And is that a good thing? They uh, uh, that's a really uh, interesting and appropriate question. Actually, it's uh, artificial intelligence that uh, many um, uh, online forums use to do auto content recognition in order to do identify infringing material. Um, in that instance, it's usually copyright. It's detecting where uh, the same image might appear elsewhere uh, uh, on that platform. And they will tell you, um, uh, not all do that, but some offer that. Uh, which is really beneficial. I mean, and it's and it, it it it's an indication of what side of the dispute the online platform um, is 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 positioning itself. Because sometimes, you know, you look at you look at all the traffic created by infringing activity, um, and you know, your first reaction is taking down infringers is bad for business <laughs> because it 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 just it, it's counterintuitive. But uh, you know there are certain platforms that are far more responsible. And um, I think AI and, and content recognition is, is something that can help and facilitate that. Interesting. Thank you for the question, Chuck. Anything, anybody else, Ryan or Alex, have a question? I, I just want to make a quick comment. I, I do shows a couple times a year with thriller novelists and with self-published authors. And oh, about the middle of 2022, uh, Lewis, you'll, I think you'll appreciate this. Mm -hmm. A woman panelist who is also a publisher and has published many books said she discovered that the exact, exact content of one of her eBooks was popping up on the internet for sale 
Exactly. Nothing touched except somebody else's name was on it. And she saw it twice. Mm. Complete lift of her work product, of her intellectual property. Just just passing that along. So look mm. how easy it is, right? How easy it is to... And it wasn't even plagiarism. It was just outright theft. Anyway, she was shocked, and so were we to hear that. Let's move on. Uh, oh, Alex Becker, go ahead. Comment. Yeah, the question. Uh, yeah, I had a comment about something I was said earlier. You guys were asking about who who owns the rights for the images created by Dali and, and yeah, the, I was and the text mm -hmm. created by. Uh, well, I, I can tell you that uh, OpenAI's terms uh, are that OpenAI uh, assigns the user the right title and interest in the output. So people are allowed to use the output. Uh, it's, you know, it does it's, it's not stay with OpenAI. Thank you very much. I just got a note that they tried to deliver my Apple monitor and my keyboard. I hope that they didn't not leave it because I could see the truck outside. Okay, maybe we'll get a delivery later. Ryan Walsh, I'm looking at prediction number two. You have a very interesting point of view here, Mr. Walsh, about what's happening with patents and with intellectual property and with innovation in the U.S. I'm going to read your prediction number two, and let's see what you say. You say, America will continue to lose innovation and further lose economic advantage to the rest of the world, in particular Europe and China, who have been strengthening their inventor rights and protections while the U.S. has rapidly eroded them. That was prediction two, and I'm going to add your prediction one. On the trajectory, the U.S. Patent Office is on. The patent system will be the worst in the developed world by 2035. OMG. Ryan Walsh, defend that, please. What does it mean? I mean, if you look at uh, a lot of things that have happened uh, within the U.S. system compared to in all the other developed uh, patent offices, um, ever since America Invents Act was passed and a lot of the, the court decisions that have followed that, um, we've really seen a lot of subject matter no longer patentable, um, a lot of the, the way patents are managed, whether through the, the patent trial and appeal board, um, you know, different different ways that it's really more advantageous for these big companies. And that's almost counterintuitive to a patent system. You know, it, it's supposed to provide, um, you know, effectively that government sanctioned time limited monopoly. So you aren't hamstrung um, necessarily because you're not a Fortune 500 corporation. So, uh, you know, we're seeing uh, a lot more inventors out of China, a lot more inventors out of India, um, and even, you know, Europe, not a very risky uh, society in that regard, um, as well as investments and everything else, but from a, a, a patent point of view, they have much stronger protections in a lot of capacities. So uh, I just don't see the path we're on, um, even the, uh, new uh, intellectual property subcommittee uh, chair in the House of Representatives. There's a, a lot of fight on that. So um, it's just not boding well for uh, individual inventors, uh, non-Fortune 500 inventors at the moment. Thank you. Interesting. Um, anybody have a comment on what Ryan Walsh just said? Oh, there we are. Chuck, anything? Uh, Lewis, Alex, anybody on the downturn in... Lewis, Alex, come on. You must have something I, to sure, say. Sure, no, I, I, um, I, I totally understand where Ryan's coming from. Um, I think there's an ebb and flow, um, as with anything. Um, and uh, I'm optimistic about um, what will happen uh, in the long term. And I think um, uh, factors will readjust. Um, 
So uh, I, I certainly understand why there might be pessimism, but I think um, um, the perspective that Ryan has, he needs to have, and um, that's part of what uh, ensures inventor rights are always being represented and, and promulgated into law. Um, there needs to be advocacy and there needs to be um, a constant reminder. And I think, uh, um, you know, that's my view on that. Thank you very much. I like the word promulgated. I don't know why it just caught my attention. <laughs> Sometimes a word just jumps out. Uh, let me move. Anybody else have anything? I, I'm going to move on because I'm looking at the clock and we need time to cover mm. predictions from Chuck and from Alex Becker. So, Chuck, I'm going to combine your prediction number one and number four. I think they go together well. And I like number one because it's part of how authors and, and inventors small-time, big-time individuals are told. You say investors, hiring managers, bankers, etc., will always value the number of patents you have as a prediction of how smart, air quotes, or commercially astute you are. And then you say individual inventors will have a rough time generating positive ROI on the patents they filed. But if you go back to the first prediction, Chuck, people say, do you have a book? Did you invent anything? Basically, what's your value in the world? Did you do anything new? Did you change the world? Are you making it a better place, right? I love that. So talk to me, Chuck. Two minutes, three minutes. Go ahead. I don't think you ought to stop inventing because it's hard for individuals or small companies to get a positive return on investment from the investments that they make to file and, and uh, defend a patent. So I, I, I'm, you know, don't get me wrong. I think everybody ought to go out there with their ideas and, and do what the law allows them to do, both in the United States and internationally. But uh, I, I do also see that uh, that patents are uh, an imperfect but often used indicator of how successful a company is. You know, startup companies. One of the very first things they ask is, "Show us your intellectual property portfolio." Uh, certainly a company like, uh, for example, Cisco, when I worked for them, uh, they had this ginormous patent war chest, uh, tens of thousands of patents uh, that were active when I was there. And, uh, you know, they weren't running around bullying people with those patents. They weren't saying, you know, my competitor XYZ is is infringing, infringing on all of these patents. Uh, Cisco was more likely to use them in a defensive sense, where if somebody tried to sue them, they'd look in their deep war chest and say, well, let's see what you infringe out of ours, shall we? And then those suits sometimes go away. So, so those are some of the reasons why Wall Street and investment banks and loan officers uh, tend to look at the, the raw number of patents, because it seems to improve the ability of that patent portfolio to be used in commercially valuable ways. So that's you're right, there's there's a bit of a dichotomy between yeah. two statements, but I think they actually they actually apply. Don't go into your first patent as an individual assuming that you're gonna make a huge killing and end up like the intermittent windshield wiper guy. Um, the, the, the statistics are that you almost certainly won't, but for, you know, every once in a while that, that big invention comes up, that big licensing opportunity, you know, the, there's people that a toy, you know, I think like slip and slide, stuff like that, that have gotten a pretty significant, uh, dollar return over a, a simple idea because they meant they, they did a good patent, solid legal basis, and then they, they knew the market. They knew the players in the market and they knew which players in that market 
would benefit from licensing that technology, and they made a fair deal for it. Thank you, Chuck. Any comments on what Chuck said? Anybody? Ryan, Lewis, Alex? I was thinking that it uh, – uh, Ryan Walsh, go ahead, please. Yep. No, I think that's that's – a great point. And, you know, Cisco is probably one of the better stewards from the, the large corporate point of view. Um, we all know they're, they're not all like that. And many do use them to uh, kind of block out the market sometimes, you know, as the, the case with the windshield wipers, not in the best way. And it did take Bob Kearns years before he got that settlement. And and the definition of patents was applied to what he had, but it, it, it he was outside past the, the use of a flash of genius and the stroke of genius. And the, the definition of that was used in patent terminology for years. And his patent was filed just after that stopped being used as, as normal terminology. I hope I'm saying this right, Lewis. Uh, anyway, it took him years to get that $30 million settlement, and I'm sure it was a lot of expense and mm -hmm. a lot of... But there's... Going back, Chuck, to what you said, there's a cachet about, <laughs> I wrote a book. I invented something. Mm -hmm. I'm going to... I'm going to do something terrible here. It's it's the word commitment. Like, you got married. You have a certificate, a license. You made a commitment. I wrote a book. I filed a patent. It's like, I have an idea, and I'm not afraid to tell the world that I think it's new and good and great or new and bad and, and great. And, and I want you to know that I made a commitment to say to this idea, I'm registering it. I'm mm -hmm. owning it. And I think that's the intrigue. A lot of people as oh, when, when I saw that Ryan Walsh lead on 28 patents and you check 130 and Alex Becker, 11 patents, I'm saying, wow, these guys are really smart. They're really good. They're perfect for this show, right? I was impressed by your commitment to your innovation inventor craft that you bothered to get patents. That's my point. And when you see Marie Curie and Hedy Lamarr and the guy who invented the earmuffs, 50, 100, Grace Hopper, 30 patents, 300, it's, wow, they must be really smart. So I think there's a cachet that comes along with that. Thank you very much, Chuck. Uh, absolutely. That. And the cachet is an excellent word. And, and certainly my patent total is figured prominently on my resume. But I hope those hiring managers realize <laughs> that past results do not guarantee future performance. <laughs> You're getting corporate on us there. <laughs> That's in the fiduciary field. Mm -hmm. Alex Becker, let's go on. I have three, three predictions from you, Alex. I'm going to combine all three because I thought they were very interesting. So number one, you say, AI. let's do the first one. AIs will invent in the future, write and submit patent applications. Let's just go with that one for now, Alex Becker. Is that revolutionary yeah. or today is it evolutionary? Alex? Well, so ChatGPT already can can speak in the manner of any documents it's seen before. So I think writing patent applications is evolutionary. Uh, what's revolutionary, or what will be revolutionary, is uh, when AIs start inventing, um, you know, more systematically. Because right now, they're mostly regurgitating things that others have written before. Um, but I think that that will come. Um, you know, the the width of the width of knowledge of the AI, of AIs is so much bigger than that of any human that they'll be able to put together you know, disparate fields that maybe nobody had ever connected uh, before. Somebody had posted on LinkedIn the other day something where they tried to make ChatGPT look really stupid uh, by kind of asking a question that sounded nonsensical, combining two different fields. I think it was like finan financial engineering and genetics or something. You know, and ChatGPT gave an answer um, and the, the, the poster was making fun of ChatGPT's answer. 
I thought ChatGPT was pretty darn good. You know, like, you know, you, you, if, if you think deep enough, you can find connections between, you know, otherwise unrelated fields. Uh, and I thought the, the, you know, the connection as, even though the question was asked as a nonsensical question, the answer was not really nonsensical. Um, so I do think that um, artificial inventors are coming and that uh, that will be fantastic. Interesting. And then you say in prediction number two, patent application numbers will explode. And Ryan Walsh, this is for you to respond to. Alex says, if patents were eliminated, innovation will persist unscathed. Alex Becker, explain that last one. It will persist unscathed if we don't have patents. Go ahead. What does that mean? Well, first, let me say that the you asked me earlier what what convinces you to pursue a particular patent yes. uh, on an idea, and and I should add to that, you know, mostly it's funding to pay the lawyers to do it, you know, because because usually I don't want to write it myself. Uh, you know, my my daughter is better than me, and so she's written her first uh, patent application herself, and in that case, the, the the cost is low enough that you could just do it. But if you don't want to spend the time uh, writing it yourself. You know, there's a not insignificant cost. And so when you're with a large institution, uh, you know, like a Bell Labs, uh, then the cost of patent is borne by the institution uh, and you have less of a filter. You know, I, I file less than 10% of my inventions for patents simply, uh, you know, out of just deciding, you know, this one I'm just not going to spend the money on. Um, so so that's, um, and so to your, your question, you know, what, an inventor will invent forever, just like a songwriter will always write songs. Okay, you do it. You know, you can't stop yourself from doing it. You can't stop yourself from coming up with ideas, uh, and 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 it's it's intrinsically rewarding. And so the patent is not really, in my view, required for innovation. Now, is it fair for inventors to uh, you know get a share of the rewards that come from inventions? Absolutely. You know, is it fair for them to be able to, you know, file an injunction and stop other people from using it at all? Well, that that's I think you know, um, you know, a bigger question. Um, so uh, you know, I think that particularly in a world of patent trolls, there there's there's a lot of negatives associated with patents. Uh, people who are not really there's um so this relates to a bigger question, which is um, what you know, what what does an inventor? How does an inventor make a living? Right, so today there are essentially two two routes available for them for the most part. One is you can become an entrepreneur and build a company around your invention. And that's what most venture capitalists expect inventors to do. Go spend the next any years of your life building a company out of it. Uh, and that, that sort of requires the inventor to stop inventing for several years and sort of build a company, which is a, a completely different endeavor. The other path is to write a patent. Um, and writing a patent does not guarantee any path to commercialization whatsoever, right? Uh, and so there, there's sort of a, I think, a missing uh, thing in the mix, which is, you know, how do inventors who want to keep inventing find a more streamlined way to commercialize their inventions? Uh, and I think that there, there's a real interesting hole in the marketplace for that, I believe. Thank you. Ryan Walsh, any comments? I think you'd like to. Sure, sure. Um, I think a good example of this is looking at the FANG stocks. Um, we've seen over the last 10 years, uh, especially with uh, software not being as, you know, patentable uh, under the subject matter. Um, and so what ended up happening, particularly the last few years, is you're seeing, um, you know, Meta, Facebook, um, Snapchat, TikTok, they're all, you know, just copying each other's features left and right and, and you know, trying to differentiate each other. It really doesn't create uh, 
a lot of different examples. Um, it becomes execution. Um, and so, you know, that's something we're seeing. Whereas if you look at Apple, um, a much more sustained company, uh, they have uh, much more, um, you know, what you would expect in a linear growth model uh, as opposed to these spikes. And so you're seeing a lot of those software companies that had come up, you know, they have these real big spikes in their valuations and, you know, they, they have much shorter lives. And, and so you're looking at adding all of those, you know, social media and software companies, uh, you know, all the playing stock. Apple is, uh, worth as much as the rest of them now since the downturn um so you know patents and, and that hardware and you know that bigger ability to kind of cover your bases has given them um uh, uh, much more stability you know in the the downturns and in uh the face of competition you know that's not to say that there aren't you know challenges and uh different litigations that's happening um but there's a much more predictable fashion, which, you know, as Alex mentioned, when you're dealing with investors and, and venture capitalists and different pieces of that, um, you know, they want that predictability. They want that kind of, uh, you know, traditional uh, ramp up as opposed to these large spikes and drops. Thank you very much. We're almost out of time, but I want to make two comments about ChatGPT. And I think one is going to surprise some or maybe all of you. ChatGPT apologized to me the other day. It apologized. It gave me the wrong attribution of a quote to the wrong character in a movie. And, it, and I researched it and I knew that that character was not in that movie. And I went and did my homework and I, then it gave me another character was wrong. And it wrote, I got that wrong. I'm sorry for the confusion. Now, people say ChatGPT and AI chatbots are not sentient. It apologized. There was empathy. I'm sorry if I cause confusion is an empathetic statement. I don't yeah. care how you slice it. That is right, right, Lewis? Yeah, and also, and there are times when it says to me, I'm only facts loaded from up to the end of 2021. Yeah. I don't look at the internet. I don't know that. Interesting. But when I asked it who I was, it said it didn't know me. Then I asked about this show, Technology Revolution. It gave me this show on a channel I'm not on. Of all the syndications this show is on, a new business internet radio channel. And it said that the person who does the voiceover for this show, who used to be with Voice America, was the host of this show on a channel I'd never heard of. And I thought, well, that's nice. I'm glad he took over my show, which he didn't, but he helped me create it. And I thought that was interesting. So uh, we've got about, about a minute and a half. Alex Becker, you want to say quick, go. Uh, I, I had a similar experience. Uh, so I asked ChatGPT, I was looking at the evolution of longevity. Uh, and so I asked the question, uh, who was the oldest person who ever lived who died before 1990? Uh, and uh, the answer initially was, as of my knowledge, cut off in 2021, the oldest person ever recorded who died before 1990 was uh, a French woman named Jean Calment. She lived to be 122 years and 164 days old, and she passed away on August 4th, 1997. And I, I, I said, well, you told me, and, and, and I was continuing a conversation. I said, you told me earlier that was incorrect, didn't you? 
And, and it said, I apologize for any confusion. You're correct that I previously stated that the answer is incorrect because Jean Calmon passed away on August 4th, 1997, which is after 1990, you know. And then yeah, she uh, it corrected itself and gave me a, a Japanese uh, man who lived to be 120 years old who passed away in 1986. There you go. So there is a little bit of empathy or at least an acknowledgement of wrongdoing mm -hmm. or wrong faith. Thank you so much. I want to say thank you, uh, Louis, Alex. A pleasure to meet you. Ryan Walsh, thank you My for question. the introduction to our patent attorney today. Ryan Walsh, always great to see you. I saw those dimples before. You actually smile. There they are. I got him to smile. Oh my goodness. Chuck Byers, always happy to have you and Alex Becker as well. And I have a little quick a homework assignment for all of you before we say goodbye. People say the future is already here. And our answer, I want you to all, Louis, Alex, and Chuck and Ryan, get your finger ready to wag. And on the count of three, you're going to join me and say, no, no, no. One, two, three. No, 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 I don't hear you. No, 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 no. Why? Because that was yesterday's future. Today's future hasn't happened yet. And we're all going to make it a better one. Bonnie D signing off. Let's say goodbye. Thank you for joining us for Technology Revolution, the future of now. Mark your calendar to join host Bonnie D. Graham every Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel to hear how technology is impacting your future now. Oh